Thank you so much, choir and Robert, for such a beautiful time of worship this morning. I heard a few weeks ago that when Tyler started out his sermon, he mentioned something about Dr. Crosby's hair. And I just want you to know that I have more hair than both Tyler and David combined, all right? So just keep that in mind this morning as we begin. Uh, There seems to be a bit of confusion around our church because we have three people on staff that all start with the same letter. So what I wanted to do is clear up that confusion for you this morning. As you can see, all three people on the screen and the other two did not know that I was going to be doing this this morning, so they'll probably thank me for that later. But the most handsome one on the screen, of course, is the one in the middle. And the two on either side, as you can see, is Tyler and Tim. Now, here's what I want you to remember this morning. A few weeks ago after Tyler preached uh, that Monday morning, I received a really nice email telling me how great I did. I had a phenomenal job preaching, and it really boosted my ego. Unfortunately, that was not me on stage. So I contemplated whether or not I should keep this email to boost my ego or forward it on to Tyler. And I ended up forwarding it on to Tyler. But this morning, I want you to know that if you like my sermon, this is my email address, okay? I want you to get that right. Now, if you don't like my sermon, please keep moving. Send it to one of these two guys, okay? We want to make sure that that is clear this morning. Good emails come to me, bad emails go to them, all right? I'm so appreciative of Dr. Crosby for letting me preach this morning. He is in Texas, and I know that he is probably watching via our webcast this morning to make sure I don't say anything inappropriate or to make sure I don't say anything out of line. So, Dr. Crosby, if you are viewing our webcast, welcome to the service as well. Uh, This morning, we are concluding our study on social networking. And Dr. Crosby has been bringing us messages week after week dealing with how to launch our network, how to integrate our circles, how to create our website, things of that nature. And this morning, the last session in this study is on how to follow Jesus. Now, it seems pretty simple. Following Jesus is a pretty simple topic. And when David told me that's what I would be preaching on, um, you know, what can I contribute to the topic of following Jesus, all right? But this morning, Jesus has much to tell us in his word. And as I was preparing for this message, I began to realize that we live in a culture where following somebody is seen as a weakness. Now think, of that, think about that with me this morning. How many of you have been to any seminars on how to be a good follower? Picked up a New York Times bestseller on being a follower? Do you teach your kids around the dinner table at night how to go to school and be followers? I think not. Right, following is a thing in our culture that is viewed as a weakness the majority of the time. We don't talk about being a follower. In fact, we would encourage people to be leaders, not followers. But this morning, Jesus is very, very clear throughout Scripture that we are to be followers of him. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be a successful leader because you are following the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords. So if you have your Bible with me this morning, would you please turn to Mark chapter 2. Starting in verse 18. Now, we have a lot of scripture to read, and I'm going to read it all because it's all important. So you're going to have to follow with me quickly this morning. Starting in verse 18, we're going to be reading all the way through the third chapter, verse 6. Starting in chapter 2, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does... 
the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This morning, as we look at how to follow Jesus, the first thing we need to realize is that we need to value our relationships more than our religious acts and our religious rituals. As you can see in verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, you need to understand something about the Pharisees and John's disciples. They both enjoyed fasting. The disciples had a habit of fasting every Monday and Thursday. And John's disciples had a habit of fasting as a way to promote their lifestyle of self-denial. It was a way for them, if they were hungry, they would fast. It was a way for them to get closer to God. Fasting is not something that we do a lot here in America. It happens a lot more in cultures outside America, uh, Christian cultures, that is. Now, there are some of us here who would admit that we fast. I remember standing right over there when Slade Simons, the chairman of our deacon, in August of 2010, I believe, came up before us and said that we need to enter into a time of prayer and fasting because of the state of our finances. And I certainly believe that because we fasted and we went on our knees before God, that God blessed our finances and we were able to come out of that financial hole that we were in. So fasting is certainly a discipline that we should all cultivate. It's something that we should study. It's something that we should look at. But it is not the main emphasis in this passage. What Jesus is really saying here is that Pharisees, John's disciples, you do not need to spend time fasting trying to get closer to me because I'm right in front of you. Jesus was right with the disciples. They didn't have to fast in order to get closer to them. They had the Savior of the world right in front of their face. The real discipline that's being taught here is being satisfied in your relationship with Jesus Christ in spite of your circumstances. Fasting was typically done most of the time as a way to mourn over the loss of a loved one, as a sign of repentance, or just general grieving. That's what fasting was for. Jesus had the disciples with him, and he was telling them, there is no need for you to be fasting. I am with you. Celebrate with me while I am here. The fasting can wait. The fasting is not needed when the Savior of the world is right in front of you. But the Pharisees and the disciples of John did not understand that. Please understand this morning that the true discipline being taught here is that you need to rest and be content in the presence of Jesus. No religious ritual is going to fulfill you. 
No religious ritual is going to get rid of the pain and the suffering and the heartache in your life. Those are all human emotions that you're always going to experience. It is not going to go away. But I'll tell you what's always going to be there for you. Jesus Christ. So rest in his presence this morning, knowing that no religious ritual or obligation is going to fulfill you, but your relationship with Jesus is what fulfills you this morning. Value your relationship more than your religious rituals. The second thing I want you to remember this morning is that we need to know that it is out with the old and in with the new. Now let me explain to you, as you read this passage, there are two important images that Jesus gives us, one of a cloth and one of wine. And many of you know when you get a brand new shirt, you take it, you put it in the washing machine, and it shrinks. All right? And you continue to wash it. It might continue to shrink, but over time, it eventually is going to settle into its normal wearing habit. Jesus is saying here, if you take a new piece of cloth and you put it on an old garment and you wash that garment, that new piece of cloth is going to shrink and it's actually going to tear away at the old garment that's already there. Secondly, and I have put it for you on the screen, an example of wineskins. This is a pretty good little illustration of what it looks like. It's basically just a canteen. It could hold wine, it could hold water, it could hold other liquids in that time period. Now, we don't really use wineskins today, which is why I put the image on the screen for you to see what's going on here. You can see the new wineskins, how pretty they are, how smooth it's made of animal skins, how smooth it is. And you can look at the old wineskin. You can see how it's kind of crackly, it's worn, it's old, it's already stretched out. The analogy that Jesus is giving here is, do not take your new wine and pour it into old wineskins. Now, as we know, wine ferments. And over time, as it ferments, it begins to stretch out those wineskins. So if you put new wine into old wineskins, wineskins that are already stretched out, what's going to happen? They're going to burst. They're going to explode. And what Jesus is teaching in this passage is that we do not need to mix the old with the new. The fasting of the Pharisees, the fasting of John's disciple, was an old habit. Jesus had arrived... The mere appearance of Jesus in this passage eliminates the need for fasting because he is the new covenant. He is the one who would come to forgive in the world of their sins. There is no need to take old habits, old Old Testament laws, and mix them in Jesus' presence. It is not necessary. In fact, the Pharisees and the disciples of John's behavior really in this passage is unacceptable because they have the Savior of the world right in front of them and they're still more concerned with mixing the old and the new. This morning, do not mix the old with the new. The Old Testament laws are great. We should certainly study them. We should certainly be aware of why they're important. But this morning, you are not held responsible to that because what Jesus did on the cross for you, he died on the cross that you could have relationship with him. Do not mix the old in with the new this morning. Realize that out with the old, in with the new, Jesus Christ is the one who forgives you of your sin. Do not mix the old with the new this morning. Number three, and it's really probably the point that I want to camp out on the most this morning, dismiss your legalistic tendencies. Oh, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the Pharisees. We could say so much about this group of people that Jesus constantly was in battle with. The Pharisees just didn't get it. And as we read Scripture, and I know we all know about the Pharisees, the more we read about them, the more we get frustrated with them because they know the law They knew that a Messiah was coming, but they just didn't get the fact that it was Jesus. The Pharisees were a group that was very, very frustrating to Jesus, and throughout his ministry, some of the most 
critical arguments and feuds back and forth happen between Jesus and the Pharisees this morning. I want you to realize, and it says in verse 24, that the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You see, Jesus was more concerned in this passage about meeting the needs of his disciples than he was about following some Old Testament law. I ask you this morning, are you more concerned with your structure, rigid schedule, and rules than you are with meeting the needs of those around you? Meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of those that you come in contact with. That is the gospel. Not following some Old Testament law, not following some fasting ritual, not doing things that are not lawful on the Sabbath. The Pharisees had created a list of 39 laws prohibiting work on the Sabbath. 39. And what Jesus and the disciples were doing in this passage, reaping grain, fell number three on the list. Now, if I was Jesus, I probably would have done something a little bit further down the list, at least make the Pharisees have to turn the page, all right, if you're going to break a law. He did number three, reaping on the Sabbath, not allowed. ABC did a show, and it might still be on television a few years ago in 2008. It was called What Would You Do? I don't know if any of you have ever seen that show on TV. What they do is they take people, kind of put them on hidden camera, and see how they'll respond in real-life situations. Now, I was doing some research because I wanted to really illustrate this point to you, and I found an example on a show that they did in 2008 where they put an advertisement in the newspaper and on Craigslist, and it said, ABC News, looking for new anchors. And so people responded to the survey. They went in and they made interviews. The producer had interviews with all the people, and they came up with a list of 22 participants that ABC was going to bring in and allow to have on-air auditions to be one of the anchors on ABC News. The producer has the meeting with him. He lets them know, all right, all of you are here. In a few moments, moments, I'm going to give you a card, and you're going to walk down the hallway, and you're going to have an on-air audition. Now, on this card is the topic that you need to be discussing when you go into your um, audition. Now, what the people didn't realize is that every card that the producer handed out had the exact same topic. The topic was the Good Samaritan story from the Bible. So as the people began to prepare, we all know how the story goes. There's a man walking down the road. He's beaten. He is robbed. He's left half dead. The two religious men walk right past him. And then we have the Samaritan, the one who is on the outskirts of society, the one who would be least likely to help in a situation like this. He picks up the man, takes him to the end, bandages up his wounds, and tells the innkeeper, pay for whatever this man needs, and then he leaves. So the people in the audition began, if they didn't already know the story, they began to find a way, how can we, how can we discuss this in our audition? How can we make this lively so that we get the job at ABC News? The producer handed him a sheet of paper, and it said, right down the road here is the studio. If you'll just follow this path, you'll be the interview. They'll be waiting on you. Now, what the participants also did not realize is that there were two groups in this experiment. The group that was not under a time constraint, meaning that they did not have to get there within a certain amount of time, And in the group who was under a time constraint, they had to be there like 10 minutes from when he handed them the card. Well, there's no surprise to us as they were walking along the path. ABC had hired two men to act as if they were distressed, act as if they needed assistance. They were on the ground, uh, sick, hurting, screaming out for help. Remember, these people had the story of the Good Samaritan in their minds. They had been preparing this for their audition. Which group do you think was more likely to stop and help? the group that was not under the time constriction. 80% of the people that were not under the time constriction stopped to help the men on the side of the road 
Sadly, I hate to report to you this morning that only 35% of the people that were under the time constriction stopped to help the men on the side of the road. What that says to me is we are far more too concerned with our time and our schedules and with our lives being comfortable than we are with helping out those that are really in need. Now, if there's any church that does a great job of meeting the needs of the community, I would say that we do a phenomenal job at it. We go out into the city every week. We feed. We go to the nursing home. We do other things. But I want to warn you this morning to dismiss your legalistic tendency. Dismiss the need to check off your rules. Dismiss the need to follow each and every rigid structure and rule that you have in your life. It is not as important as meeting the needs of those around you. In case you didn't know, there's no gold medal award in heaven for never missing Sunday school. I just want to let you know that this morning. There is no gold medal that God is going to give you for never going a mile over the speed limit. Now, I'm certainly not condoning driving over the speed limit, okay? In fact, I've lived in this city almost three years. I have received four camera tickets. I am not the example of safe driving. You can ask my wife this. All right, the most often argument that we get in is over my driving. I'm certainly not condoning driving over the speed limit, but I'm here to tell you that living your life by the book all the time, it's just not how Jesus lived his life. He didn't. He met the needs of those around him, even if it made other people, like the Pharisees, uncomfortable. Dismiss your legalistic tendency. Live a life of freedom and grace under Jesus Christ. Number four, I want you to realize that people are watching. As we move on into the the scene where Jesus is in the temple, excuse me, the synagogue, and he is very aware of what goes on in the synagogue. Jesus is not new to behavior in the synagogue. He grew up in the synagogue. He taught there. Not only was the synagogue a place where he did teaching, it was also a community center. They fed the orphans. They took care of widows. They did all sorts of things in a synagogue. Jesus, more than anyone else, would have known correct behavior in the synagogue. What does he do? He tells the man to come up, stand up. Now, what you need to understand is the Greek verb in this passage really indicates that Jesus got him not only to stand up, but to come front and center of the synagogue. Jesus wasn't just healing this man in the back corner where nobody could see him. He asked the man to come front and center. I can just imagine the people amazed at what Jesus was doing. Jaws dropped in silence, whispering to one another, giving him dirty looks. Because they knew he wasn't supposed to be doing this. This was the Sabbath. You do not heal on the Sabbath. The Pharisees will be the first to tell you that. Jesus knew it, but what does he do? He brings the man front and center, takes his hand, and he heals him. It's because Jesus was more concerned about meeting the need of the man than he was about what other people thought about him. You see... I'm not convinced that Jesus really cared completely what other people thought about him. Now, let me make this clear. I certainly believe Jesus loved everyone. He had compassion on everybody. But do you really think he cared at times what the Pharisees thought about him? I think Scripture gives it pretty clear that Jesus was okay with upsetting people at times. He was okay with getting under people's skin. See, Jesus wasn't concerned about promoting an image. An image, that's a buzzword in our culture today. What kind of image do you promote? I want you to know something this morning, that the image you promote is just a glimpse of who you really are. You can only fool someone so long with an image. Prime example, 
Tiger Woods. 1997, I'll never forget, as a golf fan, now I have to throw one sports illustration in there because you need to know that sports is my life. All right, I love sports. If it's on TV, I'm watching it. It doesn't matter. Ice skating, gymnastics, whatever. X Games, skateboarding, I'm watching it. Sports, that's me. People ask me what my hobbies are. A lot of people say fishing, hunting. No, sports. I sit in front of the TV and I watch sports. So I have to give you some type of sports illustration to show you what I'm really passionate about. Tiger Woods in 1997, he was a 21-year-old man just out of college. He wins the Masters. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with golf, the Masters is the, the mecca of all golf tournaments. It's the most beautiful course in the world. He wins the golf tournament at the age of 21. He really annihilates the field. He goes on in 2000 at another very special course in California called Pebble Beach. Many of you probably heard of it. And he wins the U.S. Open by 15 strokes. That is the biggest margin of victory at a U.S. Open in the history of the event. In 2008, he wins the exact same tournament on a torn ACL. Tiger Woods is a stud, all right? Let me just tell you that. On the golf course, he's a stud. Let me clarify. And then, of course, I'll never forget watching sports the day after Thanksgiving, which is what we all do. We watch football. In 2009, when Tiger Woods was in a car accident, we all remember how this happened some sports announcer comes on the air and says, Tiger Woods has been in a car accident. More details to come. I remember turning to my wife and my family and saying, there's a lot more to this story than that. And we all know what happened, don't we? Within two or three months, allegation after allegation came out. Extramarital affairs, a link to steroids, this and that. And the man who had built up this image, he was the first billion-dollar athlete he had the greatest clothes in the world in Nike. I mean, if you've seen Tiger Woods in Nike stuff, he looks really cool in it. He looks cooler than any other golfer. But when he takes his hat off, then he doesn't look so cool. But with his hat on, he looks really cool. He had a beautiful wife who I think was a Swedish model and two children. I, he had a charitable foundation that had raised millions and millions of dollars for children. He was on top of the golfing world, and for the most part, everybody in society viewed him as a good guy. Boy, the staff that he had working for him, promoting his, his image, was excellent. And in a matter of about two or three months, he went from being the most famous athlete of our time period to being, according to Forbes, the most hated athlete, which just came out this past month, the most hated athlete in the world, still today. What happened to Tiger Woods? Let me tell you what happened to Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods was more concerned about promoting his image than he was really being a genuine human being. You can only fool people with an image so long before you understand that it is just a mere glimpse of who you are. I challenge you this morning to quit promoting your image and promote the cause of Christ in your life. Promote the gospel. You can fool people only so long with an image. But the cause of Christ is for eternity. And so I challenge you this morning to promote the cause of Christ in all that you do. Realize, like Jesus did, that in spite of the fact that people are watching, he didn't care. He was going to meet the needs of those around him. Your images are just a mere glimpse of who you really are. And last but not least, this morning, realize that in this passage, Jesus silenced the crowd he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. 
I've taken a lot of tests in my life. I've flunked a lot of tests in my life. I've only aced a few tests in my life. But I'm here to tell you, if Jesus were to come down today and ask me, what's better to do, save life or to kill, do good or do evil? I'm pretty sure each and every one of us in this room could ace that test without any trouble. But yet, what does the text say? They were silent. Now, the silence demonstrates two very important things to me in this passage. Number one, and this is throughout this whole passage, you need to understand that what this silence really represents is Jesus' authority. See, what's really being challenged in this passage is Jesus' authority throughout the entire passage that we've looked at. His authority is being put in question every time he does something. And by him coming out and making a statement like this and it causing the Pharisees and those in the synagogue to be in utter silence, to me, demonstrates the authority that Jesus has. It also demonstrates one more very important thing to me. And that is, it demonstrates to me the hardness of the hearts of those around him. It's a simple question. Would you rather do good? Would you rather do evil? Would you rather save a life? Would you rather kill a life? They could not answer the question. Give me a break. How hard of a question is that? It's because their hearts were hard. It is a sad, sad state of affairs when our hearts get so hard that we cannot answer a simple question like this. And the Pharisees' hearts were so hard that they could not answer this. I want to challenge you this morning to silence the crowd in your own life. You see, Jesus silenced the crowd through his authority and through the good deeds that he did. This morning, you have the opportunity to silence the crowd wherever you are, in your workplace, in your schools, in the communities that you live in. You have an opportunity to silence the crowd by the way you conduct yourself, by the way you live your life. Are the choices and decisions and the words and the behaviors that you act on silencing the crowd? Or are you just blending in with everyone else? Jesus silenced the crowd with his actions. He silenced the crowd with the words that he said. Of course he's the savior of the world. I'm not trying to tell you that you're Jesus. I understand that. None of us are. We're never going to be. But you can make a difference in your community. You can silence the crowd. Now, I know that some of you are here today by yourself because your spouse or one of your children is saving a spot for you down in Uptown right now waiting for Bacchus. I know that's what's going on. Some of you are here, and you have somebody else saving your spot. I get that. I want you to know that today and the rest of this Mardi Gras season, you have the opportunity to silence the crowd by the way you behave at these parades, by the way that you act during carnival season. Silence the crowd by the way that you live your life. Jesus silenced the crowd. He did, and he was incredible at it, and I challenge you this morning to do the exact same thing. Do not worry about trying to fit in. Do not worry about trying to promote an image. Silence the crowd by the way that you live your life, and God will honor it. This morning, in conclusion, I want to share with you the the saddest aspect of this entire passage, and it's not a PowerPoint slide, but I just want to read the verse to you. It's the very last verse. It says, The Pharisees went out, and immediately they held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Here's the most disappointing and the most crushing part of this passage. It's that the Pharisees learned nothing. Three times they challenged Jesus' authority. Three times he attempts to teach them correct teaching, 
He tries to correct their views, but they learn nothing. They go out and they plot a way to kill him. That is the definition of a hard heart this morning. Listening to the word of God and going out and not letting it affect you, not letting it change you. That's the definition of a hard heart. Do not leave today, this morning, with a hard heart. I want you to know that we serve a God who sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. He can penetrate through the hardest of hearts. Do not leave here being a Pharisee. Do not leave here plotting another way to not make a decision for Jesus or plotting another way to ignore what God is trying to do in your life. Dismiss your legalistic tendency and realize that Jesus Christ loves you, has a plan for you, and can penetrate through even the hardest heart. Do not be what the Pharisees are in verse 6 of this chapter. They left and they plotted out a way to kill Jesus. Each and every one of us have such a short time on this planet. It just goes like that. Make every decision, make every action that you do important because it does matter to God. Do not leave here this morning with a hard heart. God loves you. He has a plan for you. And it is our duty to follow him in spite of the fact that we live in a culture that tells us, if you are a follower, you are weak. Dismiss that. That's a lie. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You have the power. You have the ability. And you have the capacity to change the world with the way that you live your life. Will you pray with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, there are so many here today that that are wrestling. They're wrestling with a decision that they need to make. They're wrestling with sin in their life. They're wrestling with the fact that in spite of so many circumstances that have gone against them, they know that they need to have a relationship with you. Lord, not only are there people here that need to get right with you, there are people that don't even know the foundations of being a follower of Christ. God, I pray for those in this room that don't even know the foundations of being a follower of Jesus. Pray that you would move in their hearts. Pray that you would move in this room now, during this time of invitation, during this time of reflection, as we look at how we can meditate on what you've just taught us. Lord, just move. I pray that your Holy Spirit moves among us. We can't do anything on our own, but through the power of your Holy Spirit, we can change this world. Help us to realize the significance of following you each and every day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.